Today on the show, I discuss Life After Beth from 2014 and Last Night in Soho from 2021. Alright everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by, I do appreciate it. Today I want to talk about a guy named Pete Davidson. What's his deal? What, I mean, I I can't really wrap my head around it ever since I heard that this guy existed. I've known that he has dated like top 10 hotties and I just, I can't understand it. Like all these extremely attractive women and I I gotta understand is Pete Davidson a good-looking guy because I can look at Ryan Gosling or a Chris Evans or something like that and I can think to myself that's a good-looking guy you know I I can just I just know you know what I mean but like he doesn't I I don't know looking at him I'm not saying he's some uggo I'm not saying he's a bad-looking guy at all I'm just saying that I don't know immediately to look at him that he is an attractive or an unattractive guy. I, I couldn't tell you to save my life. But, I mean, I first heard about him around the time he was breaking up with Ariana Grande, 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 whatever it is. And I was like, damn, that dude got that chick? Holy shit, there's hope for me after all. And then he started dating Kate Beckinsale, who was like quite a bit older than him. And... Kate Beckinsale is honestly, like, easily top five for super attractive women, celebrity women, that is, and I I just, it it baffled me. I was just like, holy shit, this dude's fucking pulling these chicks, and I don't really understand how it's happening. And once Kim Kardashian and Kanye West broke up, it was like, almost immediately, Pete Davidson, on the prowl, fucking starting to date Kim Kardashian. And, I mean, say what you will about Kim Kardashian and her rise to fame and how she got where she is. And she she might not have much for, you know, you know, talent to make her a celebrite. She's really good looking. She's a nice looking person. I mean, she she rose to fame. I mean, I remember the show The Soup with Joel McHale always commented on the fact that Kim Kardashian was famous because she had a big ass and a sex tape. And that may be true, but all all things considered, she is very good looking. Anyway, all I'm asking is, do I need to be emulating Pete Davidson more in my daily life? Do I need to try and look more like this guy? At some point, should I dye my hair bleach blonde and try and rock that look for a while? Is there something I need to be doing to be more like this dude and land these chicks that he's landing? Because I can't wrap my head around it. It's baffling. I, I don't understand, but... I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to be a hater. I'm just saying I don't look at Pete Davidson and think, man, that's a dude that's going to pull some chicks. I, I just, I don't know when I look at him what, you know, apparently he's, he's very attractive. Apparently that's a thing. So I just have to live with that. Our first movie today is Life After Beth, released August 15th, 2014, directed by Jeff Baina. And he made such movies as I Heart Huckabees, Joshy, 
The Little Hours, Horse Girl, Spin Me Round, and that was kind of it for what I saw. I mean, he also wrote this movie, which is, it's always interesting when, when that happens. You never really know if that means much or, you know, if it means absolutely nothing. And our first cast member, who is not top build necessarily, but is the main character, the main protagonist of this movie, is Dane DeHaan, and he plays the character Zack. And a couple of movies that he's been in, he was in The Amazing Spider-Man 2 as Harry Osborn slash The Green Goblin. Those That was the uh, Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies. And then he was in A Cure for Wellness. He was in Valyrian and A City of a Thousand Planets. And, he, and that was a terrible movie. And he was in a movie called Zero Zero Zero. Um, one thing I will say about Dane DeHaan is he looks like what would happen if you crossed Leonardo DiCaprio's character from Titanic with a recovering goth kid. Like, that's what I see when I look at Dane DeHaan. That's, I, I don't know why, but that's, especially in this movie, he's got the hair going on, all that shit. It's just, it's a lot to fucking take in. It really is. So then we've got Aubrey Plaza, who I have noted here is hot. And let's see, she plays the character Beth. She is in, uh, she got her claim to fame in Parks and Rec as the character April Ludgate. And she was in Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, Safety Not Guaranteed, which is a solid one. It's like a nice indie flick. I, I really enjoyed it. And she was in something called The To-Do List, which I've been meaning to see, but it got less than seller reviews, so I don't know if I really want to check it out that bad. She looked fan-fucking-tastic in Dirty Grandpa. She was in Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates with Zac Efron, Anna Kendrick, and that guy from Workaholics I can never remember the name of. And she was also in the Child's Play remake, which was terrible. Uh, Paul Reiser plays Zac's dad. Cheryl Hines plays Zac's mom. Matthew Gray Goobler plays Zac's brother. And Matthew Gray Goobler, in case you don't know, is the guy from Criminal Minds with, like, the long hair and the really, like, slender face, I guess you want to say. Uh, John C. Riley plays Maury, who is Beth's dad. And then Molly Shannon plays Beth's mom. Anna Kendrick, who I have written down here, is hot. The love of my life. Uh, honestly, of all of the women I say that are the love of my life. I, I can't think of one who is more the love of my life than Anna Kendrick, but I digress. She plays the character Erica. Okay, plot synopsis. Zach is distraught following the death of his girlfriend, Beth, and develops a relationship with her parents. When her parents suddenly stop talking to him, Zach gets suspicious. That's about as much as I can say without giving the whole fucking plot away, but it's I think based on what you see on the cover of this movie, you kind of have to know, like, the, you know what's going to happen. And so I do want to take this opportunity to say that there will be spoilers in these reviews today. If you can't take the heat, stay out of the kitchen. Please just, you know, understand that if you think you might want to see one of these movies, I'll tell you right now, Last Night in Soho is by far the better of the two movies. I really enjoyed it. But I'll get right into it with Life After Beth here. I noticed in this movie right away that Aubrey Plaza seems to play 
herself, essentially, in, like, a lot of roles. I'm not saying every role she's in, she's playing the same character, but it's pretty fucking close. Like, it's not much stray from, you know, and I guess there's, it's difficult to, you know, say that somebody has range or not, you know, because, I mean, there are plenty of characters, or there are plenty of actors that only play characters of a certain kind, you know, and they're, they're not showing much range at all, but I just feel like because Aubrey Plaza plays such a distinct character, it's it's easier to call that out. And so they, they have the funeral at the beginning of this movie, and the movie is called Life After Beth. So you're just kind of assuming based on that that this funeral was for Beth, right? I mean, that's that's the general assumption. and But it's like you really don't know. They're not very clear about it. And I would say, like, Dane DeHaan shows up and he's... He's, like, an interesting choice for this movie. He's good, but I've never really encountered many leading man roles that were good with him. Like, I mean, he he seems like he'd, he'd be a better side character, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe I'm way off base. It seems as though at this point, even though we haven't gotten any kind of verification of the, of the sort, it's like we, we know that Dane DeHaan's girlfriend has died and that his parents went to the funeral and his brother stayed home. So it's like, you know, it's not like Dane DeHaan's family member that died or something like that. So it's like, they're kind of laying the groundwork and they finally, after like all this time confirm, cause he says that his girlfriend died and they, they actually like say it out loud and you're finally like, okay, here, here we go. And then we go, you know, so Zach is, I'm going to call Dane DeHaan, by his character's name, Zach, because Dane DeHaan is a lot to say. Zach goes over to the Slocum's house, which is uh, Beth's family's house. And when he gets there, the housekeeper is leaving in complete distress. And, and Zach doesn't really know what the fuck's going on. And the the dad is like, you know, Beth's dad is like trying to bond with him and trying to like reach out to him, just kind of under, you know, help him understand that, like, okay, it turns out that Zach and Beth had been going through some difficulties in their relationship and had been having arguments and stuff like that. And, the you know, John C. Riley is the dad. He basically just explains to him, like, hey, you really can't let that weigh on you forever, you know? You can't let the entire relationship be defined by what discussion you guys had or, you know, what what few little fleeting moments of, arguments you had before she died that's not really fair to you and they start you know they're playing chess uh zach and the dad and then zach's sitting there and and maury the dad brings uh he brings out like a uh one of those tin cans like those big ones that you put like sewing supplies in and he he takes them and he, he like opens he opens up the can and he pulls out a joint and he decides, you know, they're going to start smoking. And, you know, Zach is kind of iffy on it, but he does it anyway. And I kind of thought maybe it was going to take it into a weird place, but it really didn't. It just, you know, I, I was really glad that they didn't do some stupid fucking, let's see what smoking weed is like for people who don't normally smoke weed and stuff like that. And so on his way out at the end of the night, it's super late. Zach asks... Beth's mom if, you know, because she's packing away Beth's things. And, you know, Zach asks Beth's mom if she would give her this, you know, 
or give him this scarf that she's packing away. And she's like, oh yeah, you know, for sure. And so he's like wearing this scarf through a, a decent amount of this movie and it's really fucking weird. And when he gets home, I it was at this point where he gets home at like three in the morning and, you know, Cheryl Hines is his mom and she's like yelling across the house at Zach for showing up at like three in the morning. And I'm like, is this dude supposed to be in high school? Are these two supposed to be in high school? Because, I mean, even in 2014, and Dane DeHaan has a young look to him, but he still has that, like, goth kid recovery look, you know? And it's like, I can't tell from looking at him if he's, you know, how old he really should be looking like you know what I mean I didn't look up how old they actually were but I didn't really think Aubrey Plaza and Dane DeHaan looked like they were in high school but that is what we were led to believe in this movie and and it was like at this point that I finally realized that his dad was Paul Reiser because they were focusing so much on Cheryl Hines and Cheryl Hines I she always sticks out to me because she's got that that mouthful of teeth that's like she's not like an unattractive woman but she's like She's got such large teeth, you know, and it, it just, it stands out. And so his brother, we see him the next day, is, uh, he's like a security guard or something. And he's got, you know, he's the guy from Criminal Minds. And he is, he just looks like the, he looks the weirdest with short hair. It doesn't really work for me. I don't really understand what I'm looking at when I see this guy and he doesn't have long hair, but I'm sure he cut his hair in Criminal Minds. Please, you don't have to tell me that that happened. I don't need to know anything about Criminal Minds. I've seen enough. And then he starts, you know, Zach's going to bed one night and he's got this fucking scarf of Beth's on and it's, he's just getting a little weird with it. And he like, he goes to like basically touch himself with this fucking scarf and then his brother like, breaks into his room and catches him doing it without even intending to. And the brother's like accusing him of, uh, of fucking the scarf and shit. And it's just, it's such an odd choice. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, why did you have that in here? Like, I guess to show how much he missed Beth, like, all right. And so after this, Zach goes over to the parents' house and then it's like, you know, cause they haven't been, talking to him you know they haven't really said shit to him and it's like what are we what are we doing here you know what I mean and like what what is happening why are they being weird and he goes over to their house and he looks in one of their windows and he swears he sees Beth right and it's and it's at this point that his brother comes up all of a sudden out of nowhere and is like confronting him about being on these people's property when he's not supposed to be and he's doing all the stuff he shouldn't be and it's like okay and he basically stops Zach from finding out more about what's going on and then later you know Zach actually does go to their house again and he like I think he goes again I don't think he stays there but basically it turns out that Beth's really alive so to speak it's I said at this point, it's not a horror movie, I don't think, because it's basically billed as a horror comedy movie on IMDb, and I think that's probably more accurate, because there are aspects of this movie that are not horror at all. They they aren't funny, or not, they're not, they're not scary, and they're not, you know, they're not at all frightening or anything, so it's like, 
I get it. If it's a comedy, it's got the the level of horror that you would want for a horror comedy. And the Slocum House, as you're looking around, you know, while you're trying to figure out what's going on with Beth and why she's alive and what happened with all of this, you're looking around at their house and they've got like that reddish, brownish, orange tile with like the black grout in the middle all throughout their house. And I'm like, God, that is a fucking rough choice. I don't know about that. I, I wouldn't mind it here or there, but I wouldn't want it everywhere, you know? I mean, John C. Riley at this point, I'm, I'm establishing that he's killing it. He's he's fucking great in this movie. He's he's good. He's pretty much great in everything, but it's like, he, he does have the comedy chops. He has the serious chops, but he's not like a leading man. Like, I've never seen a movie other than Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story that starred him. And by the way... I love Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. It's such a great satire of, like, all the biopics of musicians and stuff. It's at this point that we establish, I believe for the first time, that Beth was killed by way of a venomous snake bite. And it, it just fucking blew my mind. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? That's what they're having? Like, it shows in the beginning of the movie that she's out walking, but you don't really see anything. You don't really know what's going on. And... Maury Slocum is explaining the situation and he's basically saying that Beth came home late the night after uh, Maury and Zach were playing chess with each other and Zach had gone home and Beth just showed up to the house and was like, hey, what's up? And she didn't really understand what had happened. She didn't really think that she had been killed or anything like that. And it was just really bizarre. And... The parents are just treating it like it's a fucking miracle. Like, they just think it's the most wonderful thing that's ever happened. They can't really believe it. It's just so cool. They don't know why. They're just thankful. You know, it's... She thinks... Beth still thinks that it's... It's, like, school time, but it's actually the summer. So, she just has some big gap in her memory of, you know, when they died. And, like, all she remembers is that she was dating Zach and this and that and the other thing. And she is... At one point, she is doing this thing. She is fucking playing with this guy's ear. She's playing with Zach's ear. And to me, you know, I've gone to... Uh, I've, I've gone to, like, a strip club before. And I got a lap dance. And the, the stripper was, like, playing with my ear. And I didn't want to make a big scene about it. But I'm like, get the fuck out of my ear. Like, you don't know, you know, where that ear has been. You know what I mean? Like, get the fuck out of here, you know? And I always get really distressed when I think about people playing around somebody's ear. Because I'm like, it's like one of the harder parts of your body to clean, you know? Like, it doesn't... There's a lot of nooks and crannies in there and things that I don't understand. And it, it's just... It's not a good look to to play around somebody's ear. They're, they're being weird about Beth going out. Like, if, it, if it's not at night, they don't want her going out. And they... And it's weird because you don't really, you know that they're not telling you something because they know, they know they have reason to believe that Beth is going to have problems if she goes out during the day. And they offer that they, you know, the two of them, Zach and Beth could swim at the, at their pool because it's in the shade. Basically, John C. Riley offers Zach a swimming suit of his. And they make reference to the fact that, like, John C. Riley is obviously, like, significantly larger than Dane DeHaan, but, you know. And the mom, at during this time, you know, they're, they're doing all this shit. The mom is taking pictures, and 
I don't know if it's just like that whole thing of like they thought they lost her and now they're going to make the most of her while they have her. And that could be, but it's like they, after she does this, after she takes a picture of them out, out by the pool, Aubrey Plaza is like sitting on the edge of the pool with her feet in and they show a shot of what is presumably a snake bite on her inner thigh. And she is otherwise without flaw. Like there's nothing else amiss about her. And so it's like at that point, once you see that, you're like, okay, so this isn't like a clone situation. This isn't anything like that. This is clearly like she's come back to life. And so basically they, throughout this whole course of action, the parents make it clear that they really don't want Beth to know that she died. You know, they don't want to tell her. They don't want Zach to tell her. They don't want anything like that to happen. They make him promise not to tell her what happened. They absolutely don't want her to go out in the daytime for any reason. All of a sudden, they, the two of them go out, Zach and Beth, and they, I don't remember. Yeah, it's in the daytime. They sneak out, and basically, they go, and obviously, you know, hormones and all that shit. Like, they're super horny for each other, so they... They go out and they they find like the first park with like sand in it that they can find and they run out and they fuck on the fucking ground at this playground and it's like that's fucking weird. Like I, I don't I don't give a shit if you're like one of those people that's into doing stuff in weird places because you're, you know, turned on by it or something. It's fucking bizarre. After all of this, you know, the sun's out and Beth comes home and she's got this like huge blister across the side of her face. And it just, it's like, holy shit, what the fuck is going on? And like, for some reason, the parents knew that this was going to happen. Like they knew that she was going to get sunburned or she was going to have skin damage of some sort. And they, they like, while they're back at the house, they keep like making out violently in front of the parents and it's like what the fuck are you doing and so they basically tell zach like to fuck off because you know he he did this to her you know he caused her skin damage and all this stuff and late at night zach sneaks back to the house to their house and sneaks out with beth and he goes they go to the beach and this is the weirdest fucking like this would make me so uncomfortable but like zach pulls out a guitar and he starts like singing a song he wrote for her and it's like what are you doing you know like what is this this is not my idea of a good time and she immediately starts to get like angry about what he's doing and she can't really understand why he's doing it and you know he's basically like saying like he's not with his bandmates because he went solo and all of a sudden, Beth starts fucking raging. Like, this music is not, you know, sitting well with her. And they just, I don't, I, other than the whole not liking the idea of having somebody sing to me like that, I because it, it's just awkward to me, he really sets her off and she, like, they're at this, like, lifeguard house thing, like you see on TV, and she starts, like, fucking destroying this house and she eventually sets it on fire and then it's like, Zach is so desperate to fucking tell her what's going on. Anyway, the, uh, she, and, and it's like, she's got like superhuman strength. Like she is tearing apart that, that lifeguard house like crazy. And it's like, she's fucking pissed and she doesn't give a shit. When, when they get, finally get back to the car though, she basically just reacts in the most ridiculous way. Like she sits down in the car and, 
and Zach closes the door and he goes to walk around the other way and she like screams and fucking breaks the window and Zach's like, it's okay. I'm just going to the other side. I'm going to be right back. You know, like I'm not going to be, I'm not going anywhere. And she's like, okay. And then this is when we find out that she's calmed by jazz music. And I can't remember if or when this is established in other zombie movies, but it's basically, you know, a thing apparently that she's like calmed by slow jazz music. And that's apparently like it was having the opposite effect on her when he was playing you know, his music and stuff. And I, it's still not clear at this point how the parents knew not to let Beth out in the daylight. You don't really have a good idea of of why that is. And the, so I'm saying this, this might be a horror movie after all at this point, which I still maintain. It's not like a full on horror movie. And Beth has been like taking mud at her house and she's, she's mudded all the walls of the attic that she's sleeping in. And apparently this is like a running thing with the zombies of this movie is like they they love the attic, you know, I don't know what it is. And she's like forcing herself on Zach because, you know, they've just come back and you see her how her her walls are all mudded. And Zach is like not even yeah, he's not into it. She her breath smells like shit. He basically just pushes her away and says he doesn't want anything to do with it. And basically he just leaves like he fucking abandons her there and leaves her there and like Anna Kendrick shows up Zach goes to this diner Anna Kendrick shows up Adam Pally is actually the waiter and Anna Kendrick just happens upon Zach and apparently their parents used to know each other or whatever like their moms used to be friends or something and I, you know, it's, it's at this point, you're supposed to understand as a, as a viewer that Anna Kendrick is the more desirable female character for Zach's character, you know, and they, you see while Zach and Erica, Anna Kendrick's character are talking at this table, you see this, this guy in the kitchen, this cook is like throwing a shit fit and you don't really know why. And they just kind of like, it's kind of unresolved. And so Zach's leaving, you know, he pays for their meal and he says goodbye or whatever. And he goes to leave, you know, he's, he's in his car. And as he's driving out, he accidentally hits Beth, who happens to have come there. He he hits her with his car. It's really like a shitty fucking effect. Cause like basically what they do is they have to have this car propped up on Aubrey Plaza and so obviously they have to they have to have her laying under it, but they have to have the car jacked up so it's not like sitting right on top of her. And I mean, the, the thing is, is the problem is like the the suspension of the I don't I don't know cars. I mean, I really should, but I don't know cars very well. But like the suspension of the vehicle, like the wheel is hanging down like the car is being lifted off the ground, you know, and Everything about physics would tell you that in this situation, it's supposed to look like Aubrey Plaza is what's holding this car up. But just intuitively speaking, you look at it and it's like, it looks like this car is, and this is I'm sure what it is, it's being jacked up at a different point in the car and the wheel is still hanging way lower than it normally would if the car were resting on the ground. And what they should have done is they should have taken like ratchet straps and tightened up the fucking wheels so it looked more like 
it was resting on it. You know what I mean? It, it would have been, and they could have lowered the vehicle a little more. It would have looked a lot better, but leave it to them. I mean, they're the pros. Maybe there wasn't an easy way that was still safe to do it. Beth starts freaking out at this point about how they're, how things are going. You know, what's, he's trying to figure out what's going on with Zach and this Erica girl. And he basically just tells, he tells her what the situation is and it's legitimately what the situation is. You know, it's that their mothers are friends and he just saw her and said hi or whatever. And it's like Beth is just so aggressive at this point. Like she's so angry with Zach and she just is pissed off. And then Zach kind of like calms her down and, you know, makes her feel better. You know, it's at this point that I'm like, I'm kind of understanding why the reviews might not have been quite so great for this movie. And he decides at this point, after Beth's freaked out, that he's going to take her to her grave and just show her what's happened and explain what's going on. And then maybe she'll, you know, understand it. He basically tries to tell her that she's like not the same person anymore and she's angry and violent and she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to act normal and he doesn't really want to be with her anymore. And then she just flips out and takes off in in his car and drives away. And she does a terrible job driving. And when Zach gets back to his house, you know, he uh, he goes and he sees that his grandpa, his his deceased grandpa, is there and is alive. And you know, more and more dead people are apparently at this point coming back, and they're you know just showing up out of nowhere. And it's like okay. I don't know what to make of it all. I mean, it's just kind of, it's a strange situation. And, but they're not really like, there's not really any exposition and it's, they're in desperate need of exposition. Just something to fill in the blanks of like, hey, this is what's going on. This is what's happening. This is why all these people are showing up. This is why the the things are the way they are right now. So Zach goes and sees uh, the Slocums and Maury tries to tell, or tries to force Zach to undo all the stuff that he's revealed to Beth and he's convinced that that's what caused everything to spiral out of control. And they're making connection with the housekeeper who left. Like it was a very brief moment in the beginning of the movie where the housekeeper left and was very distraught. And basically Beth is destroying everything at the house. And so they're like, well, we need to look into this Haitian housekeeper. At least Zach wants to look into the Haitian housekeeper. Uh, he goes, he goes to find her. Her name's Perlene. And before he can even leave to go see Perlene, Beth gets in Zach's car with him and she's just fucking deteriorating rapidly. And he goes to find the housekeeper and only her cousin is there. And the cousin says that, uh, her leaving had nothing to do with Beth. It was just that uh, Maury was a total creep or something. And Maury knocks Zach out. And out of nowhere after he's like left the the housekeeper's place. And he knocks him out and takes Beth away. Puts like a sack over her head and stuff. And he's wielding a shotgun. And it's like I'm telling you this story like this. Because this is the way the movie presents it to you. You don't really, I mean, I get it. It feels almost like real life. You know what I mean? Like it's, it feels like if this were really what, what happened to you, you wouldn't have a narrator to explain to you what was going on. You would just accept it. Right. After, uh, Maury takes Beth away, Zach goes back to his house to find, you know, he's looking for his parents, but he finds a man sitting in his living room with a machete 
and the man just runs away and then he looks and there are a bunch of burned bodies in their backyard and he's like what the fuck and he just assumes I guess that it's his parents and brother or whatever and Zach packs a bag to go somewhere and apparently it's Machu Picchu that he's actually planning to go to and then they really make it a point to show that he's taking a picture of Beth with him. And I don't, it doesn't really seem to be relevant to anything else in the story, but they keep fucking showing the shot of him taking the picture and putting it away and not putting it in and, and then putting it away. And it's like, okay, is he's, he's on the fence about going, okay, I get it. And then he stops at the store to take what's left of the canned food. And I, I mean, the Slocum's, you know, he goes back to the Slocum's and they're still in such denial about the whole thing. Basically, they you find out that Beth ate her dad and the mom is still there. And the mom is has her like chained, has Beth chained to a stove, like an oven. And Beth can't really get away. But like Beth's super strong, so she actually is able to get away. It's just an awkward move. And... She, um, Zach kind of coaxes her in because, like, the entire movie, she's just been, Beth's been in love with hiking and Zach never wants to go, apparently. So he tells her, like, hey, let's, let's go hiking. And Beth's like, yeah, let's go hiking. And on his way out, he, uh, out of the house, he runs into his brother and his brother is, like, openly shooting the zombies because there are so fucking many of them. And they show way too many close-up shots of the oven on her back because it's clearly like a prop oven that's made to be lighter so she can carry it and it just looks like shit like they could have just as easily taken real knobs and shit like that from a real oven and retrofitted it to a prop and been way better off but they didn't and they go out they go out quote unquote hiking and really this is just like the brother gave Zach a fucking pistol and Zach is just taking Beth somewhere that he can shoot her and leave her. And so, you know, he, he goes through telling all of the, uh, telling her all of the things he loves and loves about her and wishes he would have done different and blah, blah, blah. And he shoots her and she goes tumbling down the hill and that's the end of it for her. And Anna Kendrick is nowhere to be seen. Haven't seen her since the diner. And out of nowhere, up oh, she appears up. Oh. And Zach finds his parents are still alive and everything comes back together. So the most frustrating part of this entire movie for me is like, you don't really understand what's going on. And then when Zach finds his parents miraculously, they're talking about getting somewhere where they can, you know, be safe. And they set up the whole, you know, like they're going to go somewhere else. And then all of a sudden it's like, the TV turns back, like all the power turns back on and the TV turns on. And basically it's just a news report, essentially just saying everything's good. Everything's okay right now. Uh, It seems like the coast is clear and we can go back to normal. And that's it. That's all they fucking give you as an explanation. And I'm like, this situation was escalating way too fucking quickly. Like there's no fucking way that it would not, that it would have just resolved itself like that. You know, I I just, I don't buy it. If it's not shitty, if that's not a shitty fucking way to tell a story, then this was not the portion of the story you needed to be focusing on. You should not have focused on Zach and Beth. You should have focused on 
whoever it was that was resolving the zombie issues, right? And they don't say at all what made everything go back to normal. And that's that's the hardest part for me. And Beth's mom gets her hand bitten off by Beth and she doesn't turn into a zombie and she doesn't, you know, she just goes back to normal and she's fine. So, I mean, that's that's this movie. That's it. That's life after Beth. You know, I mean, the cast is stellar. I'll, I'll say that I was really surprised how deep this cast was and how good it was. And then... I guess I would say the story was pretty original. It was it was all right. I mean, I guess being original is not all that there is, you know. If you're if you can make a good story that's unoriginal, then I'd rather watch that than this. And it's a somewhat slow burn in this movie. Like you don't necessarily see what's happening with everybody and you don't really know what's going on. And I guess it's like it's because it's from the perspective of Zack, so you like you don't see what what everybody else is doing but biggest criticism the ending i mean it's a very unresolved ending you don't really feel much satisfaction from it and i i get what they were going for but it didn't land for me there's just a lot of shit that's all over the place they should have had to leave they should have you know when they were planning to go somewhere else i wouldn't have just taken a single news broadcast saying everything was good the coast is clear go back to normal life you know I would have really been fucking surprised if that would have been the way, if that would have been the way things would have shaken out, if they would have wanted to get a bunch of uh, people together and go to Machu Picchu or whatever. One note, I mean, or a couple of notes, Nick Offerman can be heard narrating the documentary on, on Machu Picchu in the beginning of the film, and there are many references made to Parks and Rec because of Aubrey Plaza. So there wasn't really much in the IMDb trivia other than that. And I guess that's just kind of the way it is. But runtime of this movie, 89 minutes. Budget, $2.4 million. Worldwide gross, $275,000. IMDb rating, 5.6. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 45%. Rotten Tomato Audience score, 31%. Personal rating, 2 out of 5 stars. Yeah. Moving on to Last Night in Soho, released October 29th, 2021, and that was the UK release date. I couldn't find the US release date. I want to say it was this year. Directed by Edgar Wright. Uh, he made, and he you know he also did another uh, favorite of this show's uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. He also did Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and Baby Driver, among others. He also wrote the movie. The soundtrack of this movie, I have to say, right up front, is fucking amazing. It's it's a it all it like for me, it made the movie more worth watching than anything. And that's really saying something. There are so many 60s classics in this, and there are so many cool ones where Edgar Wright wanted to do a song that it was like the popular version was like one that came out in the 80s or 90s, but the original version was a 60s version. And so he took the original version and put it in the movie. And it just sounds, it sounds like, because a lot of the movie, like always something there to remind me by Naked Eyes, I didn't realize that wasn't their original song. I thought that that was, that was them, you know? And then they play the song and I'm like, oh, that's weird. Somebody did this song in the style of the 1960s. Like how bizarre, what an odd choice. And then of course, that's not really what happened. Okay, so first build in this movie is Thomason McKenzie. She plays Eloise or Ellie. 
She was in The Hobbit, Battle of the Five Armies, and Jojo Rabbit and Old. Anya Taylor-Joy plays the character of Sandy. She was in The Witch, Split, Glass, Peaky Blinders, and The Queen's Gambit. She's kind of at the height of her power right now. She is, I mean, she's not, to me, I don't know if I would put her in the realm of like, God, I don't know. Ana de Armas and her are both, like if they were in a movie together, I think the world would explode. But they're both really great right now. Okay, so we've got Matt Smith, who plays the character Jack. And he was in, you know, he was one of the doctors, uh, Doctor Who. And I think he was, I think he might have been the 11th Doctor. And then he was in The Crown. Also in this movie is Terrence Stamp, who plays uh, Lindsay. And I know him from Superman 1 and 2 as General Zod because he's fucking awesome as a villain. Fucking amazing. Diana Rigg is in this movie and she plays Old Sandy. I know her from On Her Majesty's Secret Service, the James Bond movie where she plays Teresa. And then... Uh, She was in the original TV show, The Avengers, that was made into a shitty movie in the 90s with Uma Thurman and Rafe Fiennes. And she also played Lady Olena in Game of Thrones. No real casting notes to be made. I mean, they they wanted Anya Taylor-Joy. They originally were going to have her in the original lead role, and then they decided to make her be the other character. Plot synopsis, a young woman moves to London to pursue an education in fashion, but her dreams take her back in time to the 1960s for a glimpse of a woman's harrowing experience who lived in the same room as her. Great. Top-notch. Great writing, Brandon. Okay, so I've seen this this movie's trailer a lot this year, and that's why I'm thinking, like, the U.S. release was in 2022, because it was... I just seem to remember seeing it a lot more recently than this movie led me to believe. But I might be wrong. Maybe it just, you know, maybe time crept up on me. I don't know much from the trailer. You know, I didn't know much going in about the actual plot of the movie. And I think that's a good thing. I like when they don't give away the entire plot. And they try and make it as alluring as possible. Uh, Main girl Ellie is dancing in the beginning of this movie in a dress that looks like a newspaper print and that's pretty nifty i like the i like the look she's like happily doing voices in the mirror it's very bright it's very light it's very nice and then she finds out she's going to london and she's super fucking stoked about it i i made a note that no one in this movie is in an acceptable age range for me to develop a crush on or at least by my standards they're not and that's kind of the way it is i am just I just have to deal with the fact that I can't be crushing on somebody. So Ellie misses her. Her mom died when she was like seven. She committed suicide. And, you know, everything's kind of circling that, you know, that whole thing. Like, it's just everything is surrounding how she feels about her mother. And she wants to make her mom proud or, you know, whatever. And she wants to do everything she can. At this point, the soundtrack to this movie is already noteworthy for being fucking stellar. And... She gets to London and her roommate is completely ridiculous. Like she's kind of adding humor into the movie where where I think it needs it. But they have all these weird interactions where it's like she clearly they don't get along with one another. They go, you know, her and the roommate and a bunch of friends go to this bar. And there's the old cliche where Ellie's sitting in a stall and she hears the door open and she 
like lifts her feet up onto the seat of the toilet so that nobody can tell she's in there. And she like all like three of these girls, including her roommate, go in there and the roommate is just talking wicked shit about her. Like she's just saying all sorts of bad stuff about her and how, you know, she doesn't have any hope and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, holy shit, man. It's just, it's just such a cliche to me to have that happen. Like, it's like, oh yay, I can hear these people talk shit about me because they don't know I'm here. How nice, you know, I mean, it's at this point we see Terrence Stamp for the first time. And he's the kind of guy that I haven't seen in anything else to the point that like, I would not recognize him if I, you know, had the, like, unless I, like, in this situation, I had seen the cast list. I already knew that Terrence Stamp was in this movie. And when I saw the cast list, you know, like, I was like, oh, shit. And then I was like, I wonder if I'm going to recognize him because I've seen that he was in movies I didn't realize he was in before. Sure enough, like, he popped up on screen. And I was like, oh, oh, that is him. Holy shit. And he's, you know, he's obviously he's got, like, grayish white hair. And, you know, he's, he's pretty old now. But so... At this point, you know, she's still living with the roommate, Ellie is, and one night she's like laying in bed listening to music and they're, they're just in a dorm, I guess, because they, the roommate busts in the door and just starts fucking this dude on the bed without even acknowledging that Ellie is present. And it's like, okay, I mean, I guess. And I don't know if that's normal in dorms. I never lived in a dorm, so I, I wouldn't even imagine or to one chance a guess about what would normally happen. And so she starts looking for another place. And when she finds this other place, it's like, uh, Diana rig is, uh, running this and you're, you're just like not really familiar with like, you know, anything about Diana rig. She's just like a stern old woman. And I mean, she's Diana rig is the fucking best. Like I've never seen something she was in that I didn't love her in. Basically, she rents the room, she decides to move out of the dorm, and she goes up to the room, and she falls asleep, and all of a sudden, it's like she's, it's like, is she dreaming? Is it fantasy? Is it real? What's going on? And she watches as this, you know, she's kind of getting a first-person perspective of Anya Taylor-Joy in the 1960s, and she's just kind of like watching what she does and the things that she has happened to her and all this stuff. And it's pretty cool. She walks out and she walks out of this alleyway and there's a marquee for the 1965 film Thunderball with Sean Connery, which is a James Bond movie. It just really, they really do a great job setting this up guys. It's fucking great. So they keep doing stuff, you know, and they do all of these uh, these moments where they're looking in mirrors and Anya Taylor-Joy is in the real world of the 1960s and Ellie is in the world of, uh, you know, her own world and she's like in the mirror when Anya Taylor-Joy looks and it's like they do all of these, these big scenes where Anya Taylor-Joy and Thomas and Mackenzie are you know, just making these big productions of, you know, what they're doing and trying to mirror each other. We we meet Matt Smith, who was the Doctor Who guy. And then, I mean, you just see how much confidence Anya's character, Anya Taylor-Joy's character has. Her name is Sandy, by the way. I can probably just call her Sandy. I, I noted at this point that 
Uh, there's like an altercation at the club, and this guy drops the cunt word, and I just fucking love how how liberally the Brits drop the cunt word, and they they don't even seem bothered by it a little bit. I just like the way they think. This movie is really well stylized. Like it it looks awesome. They they use lighting. They use different things with like great success. They really set the mood and set the tone for this film. It really does fucking great work. So the old roomie is, you know, there. so she's going to college, obviously, and, like, she, I don't know, I don't even know if I mentioned that, but she's going to college as, you know, she wants to be in fashion. She's in these classes with her old roommate from the dorms, and the door, or the, the roomie is bullying her openly. It, it was, like, 40 minutes in when this started happening, and that was when I started to, like, question this plot needs to fucking pick the fuck up. Like it needs to get together because I don't, I mean, other than going to this dream world, I don't really understand where it's going. You know what I mean? I want to, I want to have some kind of line of sight on what's happening in this fucking movie. And it's like another example of the soundtrack. It's like they, they play, I've got my mind set on you and it's the original version. And I'm always used to the George Harrison cover version. So I don't even think twice about it. And so Anya Taylor-Joy is doing this audition at this club. And she is going to sing Petula Clark's Downtown song from 1964. And I don't know much about my late grandmother's taste in music on my mom's side. But she loved Downtown by Petula Clark. And so it was, it was a cool thing that they included that in this movie just for me. I would say this, to give you an image of what this this girl looks like, this Ellie, uh, Thomas and Mackenzie, she, she looks like what would happen if you took like Abigail Breslin in Signs and you digitally aged her up instead of just looking to see how old or, you know, what Abigail Breslin looks like now, you know, if, if you tried to, if you tried to make it happen. And I, I would say that's probably the best way I can do it. She's only like, I, I want to say she's under 20 in this movie. She's very young. And cause this movie was shot like a couple of years ago. It was like, it was one of the ones that got disrupted by the pandemic. Sandy gets the audition after she does her downtown song and she, they're, they're doing this show and it's like the marionette looking like Pinocchio type show where they make the the person performing look like they're on strings and then they just they didn't they didn't even like go all in on the puppet thing and it's like they didn't do a good job at all of anything and I I fucking hate that look like I it creeps me out like when you do oh these people are going to look like toys and they're going to mimic the movements of toys because, like, all these people have, you know, like, the sidewinder things, like the, uh, the, the, the tourniquets that you would turn on the side of toys to wind them up. And I just, I really didn't like the sequence. I mean, it, it really didn't go well for me. Meanwhile, Ellie, you know, she's kind of tr- having trouble getting traction at school. Her and this black guy keep interacting with each other. And he seems to really like her. And she kind of seems to be in her own little world. You know, Ellie gets this job at a pub. And she's talking to, you know, her aunt or, you know, whoever it is that she knows back home. The aunt says something that's just a really good quote. It doesn't really, I don't know if it resonates as much within the movie as I want it to. But uh, she says, I know you think you have something to prove, but it's okay to ask for help. 
she didn't, referring to Ellie's mom. And it just, it's like, wow, that's that's a really good quote. So she keeps running into General Zod, Terrence Stamp, and everything about this movie, you know, every interaction that they have, you know, it's like, I want to do an Irish an Irish accent or a Scottish accent. I don't know which I don't know which one it sounds like. And I should have known at this point, you know, because we keep getting these dream sequences and keep, you know, things keep getting a little more surreal and things are a little more ridiculous with every step. And it's like, where are we, you know, where could we possibly be going but to trippy, dreamy, you know, bullshit area and the character just keeps imagining things or keeps seeing things like things are seeping into the real world from the fantasy life and things like that and they go to while you know while it keeps happening that you know ellie is seeing more and more of the stuff seeping through in her normal life she goes to a costume party and i have to make a note of the fact that every tv and movie episode or you know, every every costume party that there is out there in in Hollywood it's all like they really grossly overestimate how dedicated and how much quantity and quality you will get for costume participation like it just does not happen like that i mean a lot of people don't wear costumes a lot of people look like shit and it's like get the fuck out of here you know like it's like, it reminds me of in Batman Returns, they're doing a costume party at Christmas time for some reason. And Bruce Wayne goes to the party and he doesn't dress up. He just wears a tux or something. And somebody makes a comment about his, you know, lack lack of a, a costume. But he is legitimately like the only person you see on screen that is not like a member of, you know, the wait staff for the party as like not wearing costumes, right? So it's like, it's fucking ridiculous. At this point in the movie, I'm not really feeling scared by anything. It's it's all just, it's all a little too ridiculous for me to to get there. But the soundtrack is still five stars across the board. And there's, there's a nice interaction where Ellie finally breaks down with this black guy that she keeps hanging out with and running into that she's like stringing along for no reason. And she says, uh, and... and the guy said, you know, like they make out and then the guy says, do you want to go someplace else? And she says, I'm not meant to have boys back. And he says, oh, and he gets a sad look on his face. She says, so you'll have to be quiet. And he smiles. And then, you know, like the next scene is them at her apartment, you know, and it's just like, it's, it's a really good, a really good sequence. It amazes me at that point that like, like society used to act like it was such a fucking big deal if an interracial couple was on screen. And it's like, who gives a shit? I don't, I don't care. I don't care if it's an interracial couple. I don't care if it's a gay couple, uh, you know, trans couple. I don't, I don't care. I mean, who, who am I? What do I give a shit? You know, I mean, let them, let them do their thing. In my notes, it says, I love this always something there to remind me cover in the 60s style, which was my mistake because I hadn't looked it up yet and I wanted to. And it was, not a cover it was the original song and i just had never heard it and it's at this point like late in the movie it starts to really kick it up a notch and get scary and it's been a slow burn so far like real life comes together with the imaginary or the you know the past or whatever and it's like it's very unsettling and 
you really think, because, like, they reveal, you know, as I said, spoilers, so get the fuck over it, Diana Riggs' character is Anya Taylor-Joy's character all grown up. You think that Anya Taylor-Joy died, so you don't really, you know, like, Ellie just assumes that, but it's not really the case. Basically, at this point, you know, like, Diana Rigg is, like, ready to kill Ellie because she doesn't want the... Because basically you find out that I think it's, like, Sandy, Diana Rigg's character, and Anya Taylor-Joy's character had been, like, pushed into, uh, like, sex trafficking, basically. And she started, like, murdering all of her Johns. So, you know, it was pretty fucking intense from that standpoint. And, of course, Diana Rigg is a fucking badass, and she, like, I think she poisons the coffee that she gives to Ellie. You Like, I legitimately, at this point, was rooting for Diana Rigg to fucking kill Ellie and get away with it. And it would have, to me, it, it would have been, honestly, a better choice. Like, it would have been a more satisfying movie. And I just keep thinking, like, I, I want Ellie to die. I'm just ready for it to happen. And they just, they keep making it in every movie that it's got to be like the good guys win and the bad guys lose. And it's like, no, that that's not the way it always goes down. You know, at this point, I'm starting to think like, hey, this uh, the soundtrack has gotten really Danny Elfman-y, but it, it doesn't get too aggressive for too long. And then they keep showing the mom, like Ellie's mom in the, the mirror. And... Whenever Ellie looks in it, she sees her mom and it's like, her mom looks virtually nothing like her at all. It's a really unsatisfying casting for someone that you could have cast literally anybody because she has no no fucking lines what whatsoever to speak of. And I mean, it's just, she goes, you know, they have this, she, she ends up winning. She, um, Diana Rigg kind of like accepts her fate and like goes down with this burning apartment building and... Her, you know, Ellie and, and the guy that she was with uh, sneak out and they get they get to safety. And then you see this scene after the fact where Ellie is, you know, doing a fashion show and she, you know, is all dressed up nice. And she's, uh, the, the models are walking down the runway and all that stuff. But uh, biggest, biggest praise for this movie would be the soundtrack first and foremost the acting across the board is spectacular. I couldn't complain about one character on screen not not being up to par. Uh, the cinematography, every every shot, you know, I mean, there's, I guess it's a thing with Edgar Wright that he likes to do a lot of steady cam type stuff. But it's just, I mean, it, it's just really cool. I mean, it's really awesome looking. I, I would say that like early on in this movie, it really struggled to keep my attention because they didn't they didn't really dial it up enough, you know. And because I mean, there are other movies that it's like they ended up being shittier movies, but they didn't take so fucking long and do such a slow burn to like make it work. And so it's just it struggled to keep my attention, and I didn't really care for the Hollywood style ending. You know, I mean, aside from that, it was it was pretty solid. I would have said honestly, if you let Ellie die and let her boyfriend die, and you just see a shot at the end of the movie of Diana Rigg sitting on the bed. And like she's maybe she's doing something like she's she's mirroring uh, she's mirroring Anya Taylor Joy or something you know I think that would have been a really good idea but I, I, they didn't do it and maybe they I don't know what happened if there was 
you know, if that was in the plans or not. A little bit of trivia. Edgar Wright is very enamored with the 60s. He, uh, you know, his parents had a huge 1960s record collection and they had stories from back then. And, and they also had a lot of, you know, he, had, he watched a lot of the films from that era. The scene where Eloise first sees Sandy through the mirror was done practically with the cloakroom attendant being played by twin actors, which didn't realize that. I mean, I thought they did an okay job of like, it's got to be really hard to do, you know, but I didn't really think that Anya Taylor-Joy and Thomas and McKenzie really matched up super well. Like it, it wasn't like impressive, like, oh, wow, they're, they really look like mirror images of each other. This is the final performance of a few actresses, among them Diana Rigg. Uh, the stills of London that appear during the end credits are ones that were taken during the COVID pandemic shutdown, and they are actual shots of what the streets look like with no one on them. IMDB nuggets, I've got a few here, my goodness. When Ellie is walking in the first stream, you can watch a poster of the film Thunderball, performed by the actor Sean Connery. Yup, that's, it's literally all right there on the fucking marquee. It, it says Thunderball with Sean Connery, and it, it has everything that you need. That, that's not trivia, guys. That's, that's nothing. That is, that is just a, a point in this movie that happens. Here is one where I say, okay, let's just speculate wildly for a minute and just pretend like it's trivia, okay? Diana Rigg plays a singer who was pimped out in her youth by Jack as a young woman in the 1960s, which may be a dark, in parentheses, commentary on Riggs' role as a sex symbol in her 1960s work as Emma Peel, a legacy with which Rigg herself was uncomfortable. What are you talking about? That is not, that is just fucking bullshit. Like, it's just, you have no real reason to believe that that was an actual thing. No one has said that that was a thing. It's just insane to me. Uh, runtime, 116 minutes. Budget, $43 million. Worldwide gross, $23 million. IMDb rating, 7.1. Rotten Tomato Critics Score, 76%. Rotten Tomato Audience Score, 90%. Personal rating, 4.5 out of 5 stars. I just needed a better ending for this movie. It, it was not satisfying the way it went. Uh, all right, well, that is all I got for you guys today. I uh, ran a little long here again, but uh, I'm going to try and clean that up for the next couple episodes. Please check out my other episodes that are up, you know, see if you have anything that you like. Let me know if you have any suggestions about movies to do or formats to try or things like that, and I, I might or might not give them a try. And that's all I have. My blog is at brandonatrandomreviews.com. And have a wonderful day. Brandon at Random Reviews is performed, written, directed, produced, and edited by Brandon Griffiths. Theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz from Fiverr. 